0: Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday the 27th of September. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Annika Smethurst. And Annika, who were you going for in the AFL final on the weekend?
1: I was going for the Demons, so great to see them win. I feel I shouldn't say that because I do live in the West. All the houses are decked out in Western Bulldogs gear, and they're a great team too, but it was so good to see Melbourne, more than 50 years, make the grand final, and of course, win it on Saturday night.
0: And I believe in your house there were a couple of screens going because a bit like me, your partner is, a, I guess, a fan of a sport that... um largely gets overshadowed, particularly on grand final day for the AFL. The Wallabies were playing and they're on a roll at the moment. So good for us rugby fans.
1: Yeah, it was a successful night for those that love sport, even if uh, half the country is locked up in their houses. At least we got some pretty good sport to watch. So that was one thing.
0: And a big ratings boom to go with it for the AFL. Uh, More on that later. We'll also uh, take you overseas in our briefing to see how life looks post-COVID.
2: When we landed in Dubai and from that point onwards, it was like covid it's still there but people are just living with it and they're they're aware of it but you know it's life as normal but with precautions and I guess I think it is hard for us and we've kind of I guess we see it in a different lens to the locals.
0: So we're talking about Dubai there we'll also talk about Switzerland Italy and America as we try and get a a picture of how life feels in the next stage of this never-ending pandemic. First here are the big headlines of today.
1: Prime Minister Scott Morrison has landed back in Australia after making commitments to world leaders in Washington over the weekend that Australia will help reach net zero carbon emissions, preferably
0: by 2050. He loves that word, preferably. I think he's been trying to sell that to <laughs> other leaders as well. Um, he didn't go as far as committing to specific climate targets or changing our domestic policy, but the PM joined the US, Japan and India in agreeing to updating domestic contributions. Now, what does that mean exactly, Annika?
1: <laughs> wow, that's the million dollar question. Look, this does come ahead of talks in Glasgow in November. They're UN climate talks and all of us are geared towards a new commitment there. That's the global mm. community. The only problem with that, of course, is not his whole party room are committed to that. So over the weekend, the National Party have really exposed a big split on this. Here's Nationals leader Barnaby Joyce.
0: Well, obviously, there are discussions happening. I mean, it'd be, it'd be absurd to think that people are not having discussions, but ultimately, we have to know the process as well. And my party room, the Nationals' party room, is uh, absolutely
3: part and parcel of that.
0: Yeah, so Nationals MPs, including the former leader, Michael McCormack, and former Minister Darren Chester, have come out supporting uh, net zero, as long as it doesn't harm rural economies. But on the other side of the Nationals' party room, Matt Canavan and George Christensen are unlikely to back the plan. So, Does the Prime Minister actually need um, the Nationals, the coalition partner, to vote on this issue or could he just up our commitment without a joint party room vote?
1: Well, he can change the policy and it might get through but the problem is he doesn't have many seats in the lower house and George Christensen uh, is going to leave Parliament at the next election so he's got nothing to lose and somebody like him could agree to move to the crossbench and all of a sudden Scott Morrison doesn't have a majority in the lower house which really means he's not prime minister if he can't get the confidence of the crossbenchers to pass bills so it's that tight at the moment and this issue has been responsible for getting rid of almost every prime minister except uh, for Tony Abbott perhaps for the last sort of decade. So it's a really hard one for Prime Ministers to try and work through. There does seem to be a really strong movement, especially by some progressive Liberals in inner-city seats where they're being challenged by independents. To make this commitment, they know this is where the world is going. It's the Queensland Nationals they just can't quite bring with them.
0: And the Taliban are pushing to have an ambassador recognised at the UN and in foreign countries. But when asked about it, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said our government's not considering hosting a Taliban ambassador in Canberra.
4: Australia will take a lot of convincing and there'll need to be a lot of demonstrated uh, performance from the Taliban um, before Australia starts moving in a direction
1: that uh, could give them any sort of legitimacy. Scott Morrison speaking to the SBS there before his departure from Washington. The Taliban's quest for international legitimacy comes as reports emerge of executions and amputations returning to the country. Yesterday, videos emerged showing the body of an executed criminal being hung from a crane in public.
0: The Victorian Government have eased more restrictions ahead of the 70% double-vax target, but just in some areas and just as a trial.
1: Starting in three weeks, 20 trial site businesses across the state, all in regional areas, will be able to have up to 30 people indoors as long as patrons have provided electronic or a hard copy that they've had a vaccination.
0: Those rules are similar to what the rest of Victoria will experience when the state hits its 80% double-dose target, which is expected in early November.
1: Meanwhile, New South Wales is moving towards its 70% double dose target, which is expected to be in the middle of next week, paving the way for a significant easing of restrictions.
0: So that should happen on October 11. The promise was that it would come in the Monday after we hit the 70% double dose target. Um, It appears though the government has changed its mind on regional travel. Um, Moving between Sydney and the rest of the state was meant to be at 70%, but it looks like it'll be delayed until we hit 80%. Here's Gladys Berejiklian.
4: We had foreshadowed it was likely to be at 70%, it may very well be at 80%.
0: They want to do that so all of Sydney can come out of lockdown at the same time uh, without spreading the virus uh, unnecessarily to regional towns which haven't caught up on the vaccination rate yet.
1: That's something we're going to have to wait for in Victoria too. Look, outdoor pools are reopening from today to all residents in New South Wales and the construction industry goes back to 100% capacity. The roadmap to reopening at 80% will be revealed in the coming days.
0: And the Melbourne Football Club has vowed to hold a big celebration for fans back in Victoria who missed out over the weekend following their win over the Bulldogs in Perth on Saturday night.
1: The majority of the team will head back to Victoria on Thursday with the Premiership Cup in tow, but they'll be forced into lockdown following the team's 74-point win over the Bulldogs, which ended a 57-year drought for the club.
0: More than 61,000 fans packed the Optus Stadium in Perth for what could be the last grand final stage there for the next half a century, given the contract for the MCG for hosting the grand finals goes until the late 2050s.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed Melbourne get it back next year at least. And so the All-Melbourne AFL final in Perth will also be followed by an All-New South Wales Rugby League final in Brisbane next Sunday.
0: Yeah, over the weekend, the Rabbitohs beat the Manly sea Eagles to earn their place in the grand final against Penrith, who beat the Melbourne Storm. So Rabbitohs v Penrith in Brisbane, an All-Sydney final in Queensland. Um, it should be an exciting day and another great weekend of sport. Alright, we'll catch you tomorrow, but Antoinette and Katrina are here for today's briefing topic.
5: Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Antoinette, COVID is feeling like an exhausting, Mm -hmm. never-ending road trip with six kids in the car, no iPads, (laughs) and we just want to cross that finish line.
4: So today we're talking about life after COVID and what it will look like when we finally get to that place called normal. And despite how much you may want it all to be over. I know I certainly do. Mm -hmm. Forever. There will be some things that will stick around for good.
5: Yeah, stuff like it's really changed the game for dating, which has been put on hold for many. And furthermore, hooking up with people on apps. When do you ask that awkward question? Have you been fully vaxxed? So one way of getting a feel for what our future could look like here in Australia is by taking a look at what's happening in the rest of the world right now.
4: Like in Europe, where they've just had a relatively normal, well, at least in 2021 terms, summer, even though some countries have relatively low vaccination rates. And Dr Nisha Macker is an Australian paediatrician. And just a month ago, she was in lockdown in Melbourne with her two young daughters and her husband, who's a surgeon. But now they're in Europe
5: doing a medical posting and seemingly living their best lives. And she joins us now.
4: So, Dr Nisha Makas, thanks so much for joining us. Right now, you're actually holidaying in Rome and it must feel strange when your loved ones are in lockdown, back home, obsessing over daily case numbers and you're living very differently with Delta. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, look, it's, it's very bittersweet for us, I think. you know We kind of feel a little bit guilty and a little bit uncertain every time we send photos across the seas to our family and friends it's a very odd feeling it's just so so surreal being here at the moment you know being able to to go out to dinner with the family to be out in public and to be doing things that we've always taken for granted it is it's a very surreal feeling and and like you said it's just it is very hard knowing what's happening back home but at the same time knowing that we have the opportunity and you know, we we need to kind of embrace embrace the opportunities that we have here at the moment
5: So, what's the mood like in Europe? Are people being COVID safe or are they living kind of like it's 2019 again?
2: No, look, it's it's really weird. So, we left Melbourne. International Airport was completely dead like we've never seen it before. The plane was half full and it was pretty, you know, you could tell that COVID was still in the air, so to speak. Um, But when we landed in Dubai and from that point onwards, it was like COVID It's still there, but people are just living with it and they're they're aware of it, but, you know, it's life as normal, but with precautions. And I guess I think it is hard for us and we've kind of, I guess we see it in a different lens to the locals, but when you go outside, people are obeying the rules. They're wearing the masks indoors. They're sanitising. People are getting vaccinated. They're setting up hubs everywhere. If you want to go out, they're checking green passes Um, And, you know, we've been very fortunate to be able to get on a plane and come to Italy. And there were a lot of hurdles to get here, making sure that we were all vaccinated and had tests done on time and that was all checked along the way. And here in Italy, I think it's um, the scale is up a little bit more compared to Zurich. You're not allowed to go into a restaurant. We couldn't even get into Macca's the other day without showing our green pass. Mm -hmm. So it kind of does make you feel a little bit, safe in a way.
4: So many people want to know what life after COVID is going to look like. And I think it's, you know, Switzerland is an interesting example because when you arrived, less than half of the eligible population was fully vaccinated. Um, But they were living, and I know that it's summer over there, but living kind of with COVID. Has it challenged perhaps your views on what life after COVID looks like or has it made you appreciative of Australia being a little
2: more cautious? coming from melbourne where we were very reactive to single digit cases to walking out into the public where there are thousands of cases every day and like you said only about 50% of the population vaccinated it's it's really daunting it really is um, because we're just we're driven by the fear that's instilled in us when we're in australia which don't get me wrong i think is it's called for you know with my my medical background i am aware of all the consequences that come with living with COVID, and you know, there's just there's such a fine balance between opening up and lockdowns, and we're getting there, I think. And the the way that we will get there is with vaccination, and I think Europe has proved that that is the way. You know, we've come into Italy, a country that is, this time last year had some of the highest case numbers in the world and the highest death numbers in the world. it's, it's really quite scary.
5: Now that you've had this experience of of life living with COVID in Europe, looking back at Australia, can you see how things might progress in our country? How do you think life is going to look maybe in six months to a year?
2: I'm hoping that we can follow in the same footsteps as Europe. We're we're really lucky. We've got the vaccination rollout is, you know, it's ramping up the numbers from what I can tell over here, from what I'm hearing. They're going up and that's, that's our way out, I think. And that together with a really slow and cautious protocol with opening up, I think the biggest thing is that we need to make sure that the health system can deal with what's to come next. And I think Australia's in a really good position in that we're doing this while the weather's starting to warm up a bit as well. So, you know, we've got that barrier of opening up with the weather picking up and hopefully vaccination numbers increasing as well to help us get all the protection that we need. All right, well, let's step back
5: and take an even bigger picture of the world with Dr. Elizabeth Yuko. She is a bioethicist and she's joining us from New York where she's written an article for Reader's Digest on what the world might look like and how COVID has really changed the game for so many facets of our lives. So you are a bioethicist, and for those listening who might not know exactly what that is, it's the study of moral and ethical issues emerging from advances in biology and medicine. Now, I imagine that COVID is an ethical and moral minefield. Uh, what's been the most challenging thing for you to digest as the world transitions to its post-pandemic state?
3: Um. <laughs> how disappointed I am in people, especially I, I don't know what that political climate is like in Australia in terms of masking and people being very against vaccinations. But my hope at the very beginning of the pandemic, which I wrote and said and genuinely hoped for, was that as Americans, we would get a little bit better at the idea of public health and public health ethics, meaning that sometimes you have to put your own freedoms and liberties on the back burner for the greater good. And I was optimistic that maybe we would learn to do that over time and understand that we're only as well as you know the least well people in our society. But a year and a half later, we haven't learned that lesson, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, just the thing that surprised me most is how disappointed I am in people for not learning that.
5: All right. One thing that I'm interested in is, is dating. because uh, I've, I've had a look at some stats on this and people say, you know, in terms of casual hookups, that they're now more scared of getting COVID from someone than they are from getting an STI.
3: Wow, I believe it though, you know, especially because for the people who have been taking it seriously from the beginning, you know, we've been in our own little bubbles and so cautious about what comes near our faces and droplets. And then the idea of just, you know, kissing a stranger at a bar seems so foreign at this point, even Mm. for people who regularly made a habit of it before the pandemic. So I understand why people would be scared.
4: So do you imagine um, people will have the similar conversations they've been having about STI status, you know, before they hook up with someone? Um, And I I believe there are already a couple of dating apps which include that in in your bio, whether you're double vaxxed or not. But from what you're hearing and seeing, is this something that
3: singles uh, and people dating are likely to ask? I think so. Yeah, for sure. And it kind of serves a double purpose. One, you know, logistically, whether or not you want to spend time face-to-face with somebody who has not yet been vaccinated while you have been. And then, on another level, it also tells you something about the person you potentially may be dating. And if you don't see eye-to-eye on things like whether or not to get vaccinated or wear a mask in public, that might be a good indication that Mm -hmm. maybe you shouldn't be dating that person to begin with.
5: And I guess looking backwards is one way of predicting what the future will look like. Is there anything that you found in the lessons learned in those years following the Spanish influenza that uh, you think might apply as we go forward?
3: First thing that comes to mind is collective trauma. The situations were different because you also had World War One going on in the background during the 1918 pandemic, but after it was over... You know, I had a full society dealing with the aftermath of a war as well as all these lives lost to the influenza, and they had to find ways to memorialize it and move on respectfully as a population, and I think we're going to be faced with that as well.
5: So Antoinette, I think the biggest thing I got from Nisha's interview, her being in Europe where seemingly restrictions have eased so much, is that yeah, festivals are still going on, you can eat out at restaurants, mm. you can pretty much do whatever, but I think masks and sanitising and social distancing to some extent will stay for a bit longer.
4: Yeah, and I think um, unfortunately so will cases and hospitalizations, That's just going to have to be part of that horrible pesky thing that I hate referring to um, but is the new normal
5: Listener